From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. Coming up on today's show, Russian President Vladimir Putin criticises the current Olympic Committee for being a perversion of its initial charter to unite people with sport. The Pope plans his own funeral outside of the Vatican walls. Woke diversity, equity and inclusion is put under the microscope as a Boston mayor hosts an anti-white people event. And an opinion piece co-authored by Dr. Pierre Corey appears in The Hill asking pointed questions with evidence about vaccines causing death. This is Compass with Jason Olborn. But first today... Nine weeks of war have left Gaza unfit for human habitation, the head of UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugees said Thursday. With hunger rampant and UN shelters crammed to capacity, the organisation demanded an immediate end to Israel's siege of the enclave. Speaking at a press conference in Geneva, the Commissioner-General for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNWA, Felipe Lazzarini, described how Israel's ground operation in Gaza has pushed more than a million refugees south of the city to Rafah. Rafah is the epicentre of the displacement, Lazzarini said. One United Nations warehouse that became a shelter is home to 30,000 people. The lucky ones have made it inside our premises. The others have absolutely nowhere to go. They live in the open, in the cold, in the mud and under the rain. Everywhere you look is congested with makeshift shelters. Everywhere you go, people are desperate, hungry and terrified. At the start of its bombing campaign in October, Israel urged residents of Gaza City, located in the north of the enclave, to migrate south for their own safety. Those who complied, they had to push further south when Israeli planes began bombing the city of Khan Yunus. And with Israeli ground troops now pushing into both cities, Rafah remains the only relatively safe area in the entire strip. The influx into Rafah has quadrupled the city's population and strained resources in what already has been the poorest sector of Gaza. Lazzarini said Israel's near total siege has caused shortages of food and water and humanitarian agencies have complained that the convoys of aid trucks allowed through the Egypt Rafah crossing cannot meet the needs of millions of people. Over the last few weeks, we met more and more people who haven't eaten in one, two or even three days, Lazzarini noted, describing how trucks carrying food are often unable to make it to UN shelters and distribution points. People are stopping aid trucks, taking the food and eating it right away, he added. Every time I go back to Gaza, I always think it couldn't get worse, but every time I see more misery, more grief, more sadness, and have the feeling that Gaza is not really a habitable place anymore, the UN official told reporters. And Congress has approved a short-term extension of the nation's warrantless surveillance powers, punting to the New Year a decision over how to reform the law. Included in the Defence Policy Bill headed to the President's desks after approval by the House Thursday is a measure that extends Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, until mid-April. FISA allows the government to spy on foreigners located abroad, but Americans who communicate with those being surveilled have had their information swept up in the searches, prompting an agreement that reauthorization of the powers must come with reforms that limit documented abuse of the tool by the FBI. 
While the National Defence Authorisation Act's inclusion of Pfizer avoids an end-of-the-year expiration of the powers, it also extends an ongoing battle over whether the government should get a warrant before reviewing information it's already collected pertaining to Americans. And several Conservative lawmakers voiced frustration over its inclusion in this must-pass bill. According to Rep Eli Crane, Pfizer 702 is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Additionally, this bill continues to entangle us in forever wars abroad and even managed to abandon heroes from northern Arizona, including the Navajo Nation that sacrificed for our country during World War II. And according to Rep Matt Rosendale, Pfizer Section 702 has allowed the FBI to spy on US citizens more than 278,000 times without a warrant. Pfizer should not be combined with our national defence, and it is unacceptable that the DC cartel is bypassing regular order to jam members by forcing them to vote on two unrelated bills in one vote. And here is Texas Congressman Chip Roy speaking in the House, pointing out the many flaws in the bill and the way it came about. Is who gets to decide? That's the question. Who gets to make these grand pronouncements of who is going to compromise? Because it sure as hell wasn't any of us. That wasn't the deal. What was tried to be done with FISA was to bring two bills to the floor, unamendable, decided only by small groups of people. That's what was occurring. And with respect to this, it was decided by leadership, both sides, to take and jam FISA extension on the back of our men and women in uniform, bring that to the floor in violation of our rules for single subject, and then say, take it or leave it. That was what was done. That was the compromise. See, if you poke the bear in this town, right, they don't like to be poked because it changes the way this town works, heaven forbid, because it's been going so well, so beautifully, that we have $34 trillion in debt and that we have rampant spying on the American people that is occurring. In 2020 and early 21, the FBI conducted 278,000 improper searches of Americans according to the 2022 Fisk report. We're just supposed to trust the FBI has fixed that. In June of 2022, an FBI analyst conducted four queries of Section 702 information using the last names of a United States Senator and a state Senator based on information that a foreign intelligence service was targeting those individuals. We have rampant abuses going on, and this body is just going to extend the very mechanism of those abuses on the back of the National Defense Authorization Act and say, have a nice day, Merry Christmas, go home and have your turkey, go home and be with your families. That's what's actually occurring. 147 Republicans voted Thursday to reauthorize the Pfizer program abused by the FBI to spy on candidate and then President Donald Trump the entire time he was in office. No one was ever jailed for the injustice and the FBI hid this illegal act from the American public. This was achieved when FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith, who pled guilty to manipulating a document used in evidence to influence a court decision when he changed a document to say that Trump team member Carter Page was known by the CIA as an overseas agent when in fact he was not. This allowed the Pfizer court to grant a warrant for surveillance over the Trump campaign. And even when it was later known by the FBI that he was not an overseas agent, the FBI relied on this fake evidence to renew the warrant on multiple 
further occasions. Clyde Smith was sentenced to community service and is back practicing law in DC today. The US behaves like a failed state. A Turkish opposition legislator who suffered a heart attack and collapsed in parliament during a speech rallying against the government's policy towards Israel has died. Health Minister Farintin Kocha said on Thursday that Hassan Bitmez, a 54-year-old member of the Islamist Saadet Partizi or Felicity Party, had died in an Ankara hospital two days after the incident. You allow ships to go to Israel and you shamelessly call it trade. You are Israel's accomplice, Bitmez said in the speech targeting President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party on Tuesday after placing a poster on the podium reading, Murderer Israel, Collaborator AKP. Even if you escape the torment of history, you will not be able to escape the wrath of God, he said at the end of the 20-minute speech before collapsing at the lectern. Other members of the Grand National Assembly rushed forward to help. Kocha said on Tuesday that Bitmares had been resuscitated in Parliament and transferred within 20 minutes to hospital where medical equipment had kept him alive. The opposition figure, who was married and a father of one, graduated from Cairo's Al-Azhar University, worked for Islamic non-governmental groups and was chairman of the Centre for Islamic Union Research. His speech accused the government of continuing friendly economic relations with Israel during its assault on Gaza, which has killed nearly 19,000 Palestinians. His remarks drew jeers from AK party members. While Erdogan has worked to improve ties with Israel after a period of frosty relations, he's also rallied against the current war between Israel and Palestine group Hamas, calling Israel a terrorist state and pushing for a ceasefire. In a small ceremony on Thursday on the grounds of the Grand National Assembly, Bitmez's coffin was draped with a Turkish flag and a small Palestinian flag was attached as well. And Pakistan has ordered hundreds of thousands of Afghans to leave in a major push against undocumented migrants. Islamabad says the campaign is not targeting Afghans specifically, although they make up most of the foreigners in the country. Some are leaving willingly, while others are being forced out. It is a major push against illegal migrants with Afghans at the forefront. But Islamabad says it's not just about Afghans. They're the bulk, though, of foreigners in the country. Al Jazeera's Kamal Haider reports here. The Khyber police on an early morning mission, going door to door searching for undocumented migrants. It's a difficult and risky job. Law enforcement officers are often targeted by armed groups. Officers check everyone's documents to make sure there are no unregistered Afghan refugees in the area. Women officers are part of the team and enter the houses to look around and interview residents. Nearby is Jalala, once a sprawling refugee camp is shrinking as more and more Afghans are forced to return home. We meet camp elder Badam Gul, who says he and his family are ready to comply with government orders, but he says authorities should be more understanding about this situation. We asked the Pakistani government to give undocumented Afghans more time, as Afghan winters are severe and these people will be at risk because they have nothing to go back to. The deportations are tearing families apart. We meet a Pakistani woman who is married to an Afghan. She has already packed the family's belongings. She is reluctant to speak on camera, but tells us she is worried. Her husband is not eligible for Pakistani citizenship. And she wonders if she will ever be allowed to come back here to visit her parents. Nearly half a million Afghans have already left Pakistan and many more are expected to leave soon. But it's uncertainty that awaits them in a war-torn country 
they had left behind many decades ago. It has since been reported that the Pakistani government has announced that undocumented Afghans that are awaiting paperwork to resettle to a third country will be allowed to stay in Pakistan for two more months. The extension of the deadline this week from the end of the year to February 29 comes amid Pakistan's drive to expel more than a million foreigners living in the country without the paperwork. According to the UN Refugee Agency, more than 450,000 people have returned to neighbouring Afghanistan since the deportation campaign began in early October. 90% of them did so voluntarily, according to the Pakistani government. But the UNHCR says that they cited fear of arrest as the primary reason for their decision to leave. Announced the extension, Interim Information Minister Mataza Salongi said anybody overstaying the new deadline would be fined $100 per month with a cap set at $800. These measures were aimed at encouraging the Afghans residing illegally in Pakistan to obtain legal documents or finalise evacuation agreements as soon as possible in a third country. He added, the announcement followed a visit to Pakistan by US State Department officials to discuss the issue of Afghan refugees. It is estimated that nearly 25,000 Afghans require paperwork for resettlement in the United States. And a Sinhalese judge in Dakar has ordered the reinstatement of Usman Sonko on the electoral rolls reviving the imprisoned opponent's bid for the February 2024 presidential election. Usman Sonko was strung off the electoral roll after being sentenced in June to two years imprisonment for morally corrupting a young person. He has been at the centre of a standoff with the state that has lasted more than two years and sparked several episodes of deadly unrest. Sonko now has until December 26th to present his candidacy for the February poll and obtain the necessary sponsorships. Sonko 49 was convicted in absentia on June the 1st of morally corrupting a young person and sentenced to two years prison. He condemned the trial as a plot to exclude him from the presidential election. In late July, he was arrested on other charges, including fermenting insurrection, criminally associating with a terrorist body and endangering state security. He has periodically been on hunger strikes since then. With more, we pick up on this report from African News. Jailed Senegalese opposition leader Usman Sonko may now be reinstated on the electoral roll for the February 2024 presidential election. It comes as a Senegalese judge in Dakar on Thursday ordered its reinstatement by confirming a ruling in October by a court in Zinkujo where Sonko is mayor. The judge has ordered that Usman Sonko be reinstated. First of all, we would like to thank the Senegalese people, all patriots, patriots in the broadest sense of the word, those who have mobilized for justice, for inclusive elections, and also for the respect of the right to vote. Because above all, it was about respecting the right to vote. The Senegalese people want to vote for a candidate of their choice and freely choose their president. By virtue of the right of people to self-determination, jubilant supporters of Sonko were in court on Thursday and shouted his name after the ruling. The opposition figure now has until December 26 to present his candidacy for the February poll and obtain the necessary sponsorships. Sonko has faced multiple court cases over the past two years. He has been in jail since July. And coming up after the break, Russian President Vladimir Putin criticises the International Olympic Committee for being a perversion of its initial charter to unite people through sport. You're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. 
TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The double standard is out there. It's so obvious. It's so frustrating. Eric Holder gets held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. Nothing happens. Obama's DOJ didn't pursue it. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro defy a congressional subpoena. Joe Biden's DOJ criminally prosecutes them. Criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? Haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT Radio. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. Welcome back. Sports officials have distorted the original concept of the Olympic movement and have become too focused on the business side. Russian President Vladimir Putin said during a live Q&A session on Thursday. He was asked to comment on the International Olympic Committee's latest decision to Russians and Belarusians to compete in the upcoming 2024 Paris Games as neutral athletes, provided that they adhere to a set of restrictions. Putin responded by saying that everything international sports officials have been doing in regard to Russian sports has been a complete contradiction and a perversion of the ideas of Pierre de Coubertin, the who could see the modern Olympic movement with the idea that sports unite people. The Russian president noted that international sports officials are too wrapped up in the business side of sports and have become extremely dependent on sponsors who only care about the price of commercial time. If they continue operating in this way, they will bury the Olympic movement, Putin warned, claiming that the very idea of the Olympics is failing today. 
Putin also addressed calls to ban Israeli athletes from international sporting events over the Gaza war. If I backed such proposals, I would become like these international sports officials. Sport is outside of politics. It's meant to unite people, the president said, adding that all athletes should be free to compete wherever they want without restrictions. The same principle should also be extended to Russian athletes, Putin insisted. He claimed that this is not happening because international organisations are making decisions that are detrimental to sport under the pressure of Western governments, much like European leaders are sacrificing their own interests for the benefit of the US. As for whether Russian athletes should take part in the upcoming Summer Olympics, Putin said he was always, has always believed that people who devote years to training should be given the chance to compete at the highest level. He added that the restrictions imposed by the IOC, which has banned the use of Russian flags and other national identifications, are essentially meaningless because everyone still knows that the athletes are Russian. However, Putin stated that it is important to carefully examine the IOC's latest conditions and see whether or not these artificial and politically motivated restrictions are aimed at humiliating Russian sports and eliminating the athletes who have a chance to win medals. If that's the case, then the sports ministry and the Russian Olympic Committee must make a weighted decision. He said, and a water crisis is looming in Bali that threatens agriculture and the very way of life there. Pollution also threatens the water supply by choking rivers. The government will now apply a $10 arrival tax on tourists from 2024 as 65% of Bali's water is consumed by tourism and tourists. With more, we join this report from Florence Loy from Al Jazeera. Gede Swadita and his ancestors have been farming the land here for generations. But in recent years, he's been confronted with a new challenge, water shortages. After the entry of tourism to the villages, hotels and villas appeared. They access groundwater sources by drilling into the land. We noticed the amount of water coming from some springs started decreasing. The tourism industry consumes about 65% of Bali's groundwater. Demand is depleting this water source faster than it can be replenished. When too much groundwater has been depleted from coastal aquifers, salt water flows in and over time contaminates them. A local NGO that's been studying the issue for years has warned of a crisis. The water we use today is water stored from 40 years ago. If we don't do something about the salt water intrusion today, we will definitely experience problem in the future. Bali's water problems is not just a matter of quantity, but also quality. A poor waste management system is choking its rivers. An organization set up to clean Bali's rivers says it has collected more than a million kilograms of plastic since it was founded in 2020. You know, we're being confronted with way more volumes um, yearly, you know, way more different types of plastics, more sachets, um, and that's a real issue. That feels like, you know, the problem will never stop. There is an urgent need for Bali to restore its water sources. The EDEP Foundation has helped communities build recharge wells to collect rainwater, which is then injected back into aquifers. Pope Francis is already planning for his funeral by simplifying the rites around papal burials, he has told the Mexican broadcaster 
N+. The pontiff insisted, however, that he is not intending to resign from his position despite recent ill health. The Catholic leader, who turns 87 this Sunday, said it is sensible to make arrangements for his passing, admitting in an interview on Wednesday that when old age arrives and you reach your limits, you need to prepare yourself. Francis has suffered a number of health issues during his 10 years as pontiff. Most recently, he was hospitalised with acute bronchitis, forcing him to cancel several official visits, including the COP28 summit in Dubai. Despite the health concerns, Francis stated he is not planning to step down, declaring that the pontificate is forever. He conceded, however, that there is a possibility that he could take the same step as his predecessor, Pope Benedict, who became the first pontiff in six centuries to resign his position, citing physical and mental ill health. He was a great and humble man who, when he realised his limits, had the courage to say enough. Pope Francis said the current pontiff plans to be the first pope in more than a century to be buried outside of the Vatican. He is working with staff in the Holy See to simplify the rite of papal funerals and joked to the interviewer that he would be the one to debut it. Pope Francis's wish is to be buried at the Borghese Chapel of the Basilica of St. Mary Major, the home of the Virgin Mary with the child Jesus icon painted by Luke, the evangelist. And a British boy who was allegedly kidnapped six years ago has been found alive and well in France. Alex Batty from Lancashire, northwest of England, was just 11 years old when he went missing during a family holiday in Spain in 2017. Alex was travelling with his mum, Melanie, who was 37, and grandfather, David, who was 58, when he vanished without a trace, the son reported. It is understood that Melanie did not have legal parental guardianship of her son. The trip was pre-agreed with his other family members, including his grandmother and legal guardian, Susan Caruana, who stayed at home in the UK. Alex, Melanie and David were meant to come home after a week, but never returned publication stated in a separate report. Police launched an investigation into his disappearance, but he remained missing until the now 17-year-old was found in Revel near Toulouse, southern France. His grandmother and official guardian, Susan, thought they may have adopted an alternative lifestyle somewhere abroad. The first words that Alex reportedly said to the driver who picked him up on the side of the road were, my mother kidnapped me when I was 12 years old. The teen is said to have been picked up by a truck driver who then contacted police. And coming up after the headlines, as more and more warnings are being put out on all forms of media about future pandemics and disasters, scientists report that human breath is the latest instrument adding to global warming. It is as if those who in power are trying to convince us to cull ourselves or be culled, but not in as many words. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Turn on the news. News, news, news flash. TNT Radio Matt News. Matt here with a look at your TNT headlines. The White House has confirmed President Biden was well aware of his son Hunter's plan to ignore this week's congressional subpoena. Donald Trump has accused President Biden of riding on the coattails of his success in the White House. We're now being told that we as humans are worsening the impacts of climate change simply by breathing. And as the war in Ukraine enters its 660th day, Russia claims to have thwarted yet another drone strike on Moscow. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Human breathing, as you heard there from Matt, contributes to global warming, according to a study published Wednesday in PLOS One. The authors argued that human respiration's contribution to climate change has been underestimated and merits further study. 
wonder what they're going to do about the COVID jabs when they work that one out. After measuring the gas composition in the exhaled breaths of 328 study participants, the researchers concluded human breath comprises 0.05% of the UK's methane emissions and 0.1% of its nitrous oxide. Both of those gases have a much higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide. The study notes, exhaled human breath can contain small elevated concentrations of methane and nitrous oxide, both of which contributed to global warming. The research is led by atmospheric physicist, Nicholas Cowan of the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology wrote, we would urge caution in the assumption that emissions from humans are negligible. While Cowan explained that CO2 contribution in human breath to climate change is essentially zero because plants absorb nearly all the carbon dioxide humans breathe out. The other two gases are left in the atmosphere. Methane traps 80 times the amount of heat as carbon dioxide during its first 20 years in the atmosphere, though this potency decreases over time. A detailed analysis of test subject diets failed to yield any indication that meat eaters produced more of either gas. While all test subjects inhaled, exhaled nitrous oxide, only 31% exhaled methane. These individuals, referred to as methane producers in the paper, were more likely to be female and over 30 years of age, though the researchers were unable to determine why this was the case. Study authors cautioned that their research only looked at breath and called for further research into the total picture of human gas emissions, insisting it could reveal more about the impacts of an aging population and shifting diets on the planet. So whilst the establishment scientific community pumps out study after study showing us that humans are to blame for their own existence and the inevitable collapse of Mother Earth, details are being let out into the public consciousness, preparing us for an inevitable new pandemic, though this time not a health pandemic. Much has been speculated as the self-styled oracles can predict almost to the second the next catastrophe facing the world, most of which can be traced back to the World Economic Forum's villain-in-chief, Klaus Schwab. In this clip from 2016, he says in front of then-retiring Vice President Joe Biden that the middle class are the sticking point to his cunning plan to become CEO of his Orwellian blueprint for the planet. To our discussion, which uh, we had um at dinner two, two days ago. Um, the fourth industrial revolution has one big challenge. It is the holding out of the middle class. Holding out of the middle class there. Or is it the poor will get universal basic income to comply? The elites make more money and the ordinary person will be forced to comply one way or another. So how does this plan come together in a hurry and seemingly before anyone can stop it? Let's go back to predictive programmer Klaus Schwab, self-appointed CEO of Earth Incorporated. We all know, but still pay insufficient attention to the frightening scenario of a comprehensive cyber attack, which would bring to a complete halt to the power supply, transportation, hospital services, our society as a whole. The COVID-19 crisis would be seen in this respect as a small disturbance in comparison to a major cyber attack. To use the COVID-19 crisis as a timely opportunity to reflect on the lessons the cybersecurity community can draw and improve our preparedness for a potential cyber pandemic. 
So Klaus Schwab has been spruiking this attack for years. He's told us that the middle class is the problem, COVID is the great test, and it worked up to this point. So how does the World Economic Forum pull together all of the pieces to execute the plan that will trigger the restructuring of the people of the planet to participate in his great reset? First, you've got to put on a show and keep your hands clean. Independent investigative journalist Whitney Webb explains it in this recent interview. If there would be or will be a cyber attack in the near future, um, the banking and financial system in the in the United States is in uh, deep doo-doo. How do you allow that collapse to happen? Because it has to happen in such a way that the banks and the government are essentially blameless. Well, have a cyber attack happen, and you can literally blame any any nation state or group uh, for that hack. And we know this because of what WikiLeaks published right before Julian Assange was completely silenced and then later uh, arrested and dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London, uh, Vault 7, uh, which revealed things like the Umbridge program, among other things, that U.S. intelligence and other intelligence agencies that are affiliated with this WEF partnership against cybercrime have the ability uh, to place the fingerprints of any nation state actor they wish, including Russia, China, Iran, and really North Korea, any other group uh, as well, uh, not just nation states, put their fingerprints in a hack they actually commit themselves. And this is very significant because this offers, you know, these intelligence agencies unprecedented ability to have uh, to conduct false flag operations in the cyber realm. This group specifically has a lot of solutions aside from, you know, things with the banking system that they cannot really justify implementing unless there is some sort of large cyber attack. So what does the WEF partnership against cybercrime want? public-private partnership that the WEF is pushing for is for every person's access to the internet to be tied to a digital ID. People aren't necessarily going to consent to that unless uh, they are made to believe that anonymity and privacy online are dangerous. So um, how exactly can you convince people that that needs to happen? Well, you have some sort of event where anonymous hackers um, do something online that causes major disruption globally, and then the consent can be manufactured through fear and panic, as, as is often done, uh, that anonymity and privacy needs to be eliminated, that we need to know exactly who is doing what online to prevent a calamity of that scale from ever happening again. And this is the exact solution that these guys have been cooking for a very long time, and the intelligence agencies involved are Israeli intelligence, British intelligence, and then the U.S. Secret Service, uh, FBI, and Department of Justice. And you have several of the biggest uh, banks in the country, like Bank of America, um, involved directly with this group, as well as major U.S. tech companies like Microsoft and Amazon uh, partnered with all of this. And uh, this is exactly what they're seeking, and they have all the tools to allow something like this. Uh, to happen. And when you have the fact that some of these actors want a, re a, a war where the U.S., for example, goes to war with Iran, among other things, and they have the ability to attribute, um, you know, cyber attacks of any scale to any entity at all. And uh, this is a big problem because when these alleged hacks take place, whether it's blamed on Russia, Iran, or China, the headline will blame these countries. But if you actually read the article itself, they don't actually have the evidence to make that case. They say, we believe it's this country um, or that it's a group affiliated with this country. 
And their reasoning ranges from, you know, they'll say things like, we have medium probability that it's, you know, they're tied to Iran. And, you know, all these, um, you know, uh, phrases that show that they don't actually have evidence. And then there's an effort to manufacture consent. And another thing that this WEF group is, is seeking um, is for uh, banks, banking regulators and intelligence agencies to essentially fuse their operations under the guise of cybersecurity. There it is. And Dr. Pierre Corey co-wrote an op-ed published in The Hill alongside Mary Beth Pfeiffer, an investigative reporter, and asked why are so many people dying young? Life insurers have been consistently sounding the alarm over the unexpected or excess deaths, which claimed 158,000 more Americans in the first nine months of 2023 than in the same period in 2019. Actuarial reports used by insurers to inform decisions show deaths occurring disproportionately among young working aged people. Nonetheless, America's chief health manager, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, opted in September to archive its excess deaths webpage with a note stating, these data sets will no longer be updated. What does that say? Money, of course, is a motivating issue for insurers. In 2020, death claims took their biggest one-year leap since 1918 influenza scourge, jumping 15.5% to $90 billion in payouts. After hitting $100 billion in 2021, claims slowed in 2022, but are still above 2019. It is not affecting the elderly. Mortality was 26% higher among insured 35 to 44-year-olds and 19% higher for 25 to 34 year olds, continue a death spike that peaked in the third quarter of 2021 at a staggering 101% and 79% above normal, respectively. COVID-19 claims do not fully explain the increase in incurred claim incidents. The society said COVID-19 deaths dropped 84% from the first three quarters of 2021 to the same period in 2023. The most pressing question for insurers, epidemiologists and health agency officials, why is the traditionally healthiest sector of our society young employed insured workers dying at such rates. Public health officials aggressively oversaw the pandemic response for better or worse. Why aren't they looking into this? Asked the authors of the article. Vaccines were given to more than 270 million people, among them babies, pregnant women, workers under employer mandates. In light of more than 1 million reports of possible harm to the vaccine adverse events reporting system and a new Yale University study validating a, cro a chronic post-vaccination syndrome. And after the break, the mayor of Boston holds a non-white people event, but it's not to be considered exclusion. Okay then, you're watching Compass on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Congratulations to new Argentine President Javier Malay, who was sworn in over the weekend. Malay's election last month rocked the South American nation and the world and returned Argentina's government to the people after decades of socialists robbing them blind. How blind? The hyperinflation in Argentina has been outrageous, impoverishing up to 40% of the population. Inflation for 2023 stands at 183%. As bad as Bidenomics is, at least it's not that bad. And President Malay set an example for once and future President Donald Trump by signing an executive order as his first official act in office that reduced the number of ministries from 21 to nine. 12 ministries such as the Ministry of Women, Genders and Diversity are no more. Not only will that help the bottom line in Argentina, it will expand liberty 
and bring a better quality of life to the Argentine people. Here's hoping that that happens in the United States in 2025. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles, and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. From world news to global policies and beyond, beyond. this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Compass, a holiday party exclusively for non-white elected officials embarrassed Boston City Council after a staffer for Michelle, uh, for Mayor Michelle Wu accidentally sent invitations to the entire membership on Tuesday. Director of City Council Relations Denise Dos Santos invited all 13 members to an electeds of colour holiday party to be held Wednesday night at the city-owned Parkman House only to realise her mistake 15 minutes later. A subsequent email apologised if my email may have offended or come across as so, explaining I did send that to everyone by accident. Wu, a second-generation Taiwanese-American, defended the decision to host the segregated gathering in the hours before it began, telling reporters gathered outside Parkman House there are several holiday parties that the entire city council and all of our elected colleagues have been invited to. I think we've all been in a position at one point where an email went out and there were mistaken recipients, so there was truly just an honest mistake, she said. Councillor at large, Ruth Z. Lujan, one of the council's six non-white members, insisted the event was not at all divisive. It's creating spaces for people and communities and identities where shared spaces come together, she said. Some of the council's seven white members disagreed. I find it unfortunate that, with the temperature the way it is, that we could further that division. Council member Frank Baker told the Boston Herald on Tuesday. However, he insisted he had not been offended by being left out of the race-specific festivities. Massachusetts public accommodations law prohibits racial discrimination in public venues, including restaurants, hotels, sports arenas, and facilities like Parkman House. Allegations of discriminating against white people have dogged Wu's administration since she became Boston's first non-white and first female elected mayor in November of 2021. The owners of five rest Restaurants in Boston's historically Italian North End neighbourhood sued her last year and again in March, claiming they had been required to secure expensive outdoor dining licences not required of restaurants elsewhere in the city, only to be forbidden from offering outdoor dining at all the following year. Their restaurants were also omitted from the city's all-inclusive Boston campaign, a tourism promotion, the plaintiffs said. The North End is nearly twice as white as the rest of the city, according to research, but by the Boston Planning and Development Agency, 88% versus 45% for the wider Boston area. And a DEI, or that would... Um, uh, trainer, uh, Professor Eric Smith, warns that today's DEI training does more harm than good. 
He wanted to hold down a group of people without them knowing this woke thing is a good strategy. A lot of this is what people call virtue signaling. That virtue signaling is reaching theatrical proportions right now. Smith, who went through the training and became a trainer, explains the nuance of defining someone as privileged when instead it is should be called an accomplishment. Let's take a look at part of this interview with John Stossel. Family members, take one step forward. The diversity or privilege walk is supposed to teach us how much more or less privilege we have. If you grew up in a household with two parents, step forward. And at the end of it, you know, the most privileged people are in front and the least privileged people are in back. I did that, but it wasn't to guilt anybody. It wasn't to uh, say, you know, you need to check your privilege. It was to say, look at the world here. Look at what's going on. Uh, we should be aware of these things. Yes, but some of us are accomplished and that's being called privilege. And I, I think that's unfair. It's one thing to be born on third base and act like you hit a triple. It's another thing to be born on first base and still second, right? And again, third, you know, th that's an accomplishment. And that's frowned upon now? Well, it's frowned upon by people who find it strategic to frown upon it, yes. If you can keep this race thing going, then you will always have a business in getting rid of racism. Even Ibram X. Kendi proposed a branch of government, right, regarding anti-racism. And what do you need to justify that? You need racism. It's in his best interest to perpetuate racism, you know, in, in order to uh, maintain a career. Then there are people who are like, uh, wow, well, this is a, you know, billion dollar industry. I'm going to get in on this. You know, I'll do my trainings and things like that and accuse people uh, of racism just to keep it perpetuated, right? To keep it going so that it never goes away, so that I keep making my money or- It or is a multi-billion dollar industry. Yes, it is. Every big company. Yeah. They feel they have to. Right, and there it is. They feel like they have to. They have to say something. They have to signal to the world that they're doing something. Whether that something is effective or not is secondary. Is it effective? It doesn't seem to be effective, no. Uh, in fact, it seems to be doing worse. It seems to be making people uh, less likely to interact with people who are unlike them, you know, because it's like a minefield now. Less likely to interact. Yes, yes, yes. After a training where you hear things about microaggressions, right, microaggressions, um, if you ask somebody what they do for a living, somehow that's racist, right? If you learn that, then why would you take a chance? I better not talk to Eric because I might say something wrong. Precisely. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, those words don't mean what most people think they mean. Diversity is diversity of bodies, of skin color, um, uh, ethnicity, not of thought. You know, you can have many different bodies, but they have to be, you know, basically on the same page ideologically. That page is often something akin to uh, critical social justice. Inclusion means, well, you can't make people uncomfortable. And in a world of microaggressions, that's easy to do. So now inclusion means I'm going to silence myself and not talk to the black people, right? Um, and equity, as uh, most people know, um, does not mean equality. It means equality of outcome, right? Um, we have to make sure everybody ends up in the same place, no matter how they got there, which is why we get rid of aptitude tests, um, which is why uh, we get rid of AP classes, which is why we have equitable math and things like that, that's equity. Realising the many flaws of the system and that diversity, equity and inclusion doesn't really mean what many believe it is supposed to. 
Smith proposes an alternative approach, essentially building without limit the antithesis of equality of outcome, rather equality of opportunity. Why cap outcomes? That would be the definition of communism. You give other people the opportunity to acquire those things themselves. You, you know, uh, get them into a, a good um, school. You, you, you bring back institutions like churches and, and um, other after-school programs. You, you teach them what it means to be an entrepreneur in this world. It's not just about um, victimhood. It's not just about white oppressors. You know, there's some of that going on, but there's also some agency that we have, you know, to get to where we want to go. And if we keep saying, well, there's nothing we can do, we can't win because of the white oppressor, then what is that going to do to an entire group of people? Nothing good. But this is not what is going on, and instead a drive continues to undermine anyone whose skin colour is deemed to be that of the great oppressor. While Smith, uh, Smith claimed the social sciences in education were infiltrated, he also had to concede that woke culture had permeated science, including medicine. I mean, if you wanted to hold down a group of people without them knowing it, this woke thing is a good strategy. Researchers looked at 800 companies after mandatory DEI trainings. Five years later, no increase in diversity of hiring. Companies actually saw a 9% fall in how many black women were hired. It's one thing to say they don't work. It's another thing to say they make things worse. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. Yeah, that's happening. Um, I think a lot of this is performance as well. A lot of this is what people call virtue signaling. That virtue signaling is reaching, you know, theatrical proportions right now. Quite incredible when you see people waking up in real time. Former Facebook diversity program manager pled guilty to scamming the social media giant out of more than $4 million through a scheme in which he faked business deals in exchange for kickbacks. The Justice Department has said Barbara Furlow Smiles, who served as lead strategist and global head of employee resource groups and diversity engagement at Facebook, used stolen funds to live an extravagant lifestyle that spanned from California to Georgia, prosecutors said. From approximately January of 2017 to September of 2021, Verlo Smiles led diversity, equity and inclusion programs at Facebook and was responsible for developing and executing DEI initiatives, operations and engagement programs, according to the Department of Justice. The feds said furlough smiles who had access to company credit cards and the ability to approve invoices as part of a role at the company caused Facebook to pay numerous individuals, including her friends and relatives, for goods and services never provided to the company. Those individuals would later funnel kickbacks to furlough smiles. Those allegedly recruited to participate in the kickback scheme included some of her former interns, her university tutor, a hairstylist, babysitters and nannies, the Fed said. It's unclear if any of Furlow Smiles' associates have been charged in connection to the case. She also misled Facebook into sending money to entities that did not provide kickbacks, including nearly $10,000 to an artist who created specialty portraits and more than $18,000 to an unnamed preschool. To avoid scrutiny, she would submit fake expenses reports claimed that the individuals were vendors at Facebook events who had helped with marketing or provided merchandise. Furlow Smiles abused a position of trust as a global diversity executive for Facebook 
to defraud the company of millions of dollars, ignoring the insidious consequences of undermining the importance of her DEI mission, US Attorney Ryan Buchanan said in a statement after she pled guilty in a Georgia court on Tuesday. Motivated by greed, she used her time to orchestrate an elaborate criminal scheme in which fraudulent vendors paid her kickbacks back in cash, he added. FBI Special Agent Kerry Farley said Burlow Smiles used lies and deceit to defraud both vendors and Facebook employees. The DOJ said Burlow Smiles ran a two-pronged scheme to defraud Facebook. She would pay associates using apps like Venmo and PayPal that were linked to her company credit card and submit fake expense reports related to those transactions. The associates, most of whom were reportedly unaware that the funds were coming from Facebook, would return the money to Furlough Smiles in cash or via account transfer. The Fed's release noted that the cash was sometimes delivered to her wrapped up in a T-shirt or other items. She is slated to be sentenced on March the 19th next year. Meanwhile, the next generation of those who are oppressed and whom are travelling to the United States illegally are being let in deliberately under the watch of the Biden administration. The New York mayor has been highlighting and complaining about this repeatedly and has not been offered more than lip service from Washington. Suspiciously, the former police captain had to answer sexual assault allegations from decades ago recently, adding to the battlefronts that he is facing. Here once again, he is addressing the problem of migration overwhelming the city that never sleeps. Uh, JR, you know, I've been to D.C. 10 times. And uh, each time I, I laid out a case on uh, why the, the city, that's the economic engine of the state in the country, uh, should not be going through this. And walking out, what I uh, did not see the level of urgency. You know, I want to take my hat off to uh, Senator Schumer and Congressman Jeffries for really pushing <coughs> on this issue. Uh, but uh, I'm just not seeing uh, the, you know, the White House and their colleagues up there understanding that we need a decompression strategy. We should be funding this on a national level. Uh, we uh, must make sure we allow people to work, you know, basic things. Uh, you know, this does not have to be the crisis at the level that it is. New York City has shown um, we can manage this if we're just get, given a little help. I mean, we have shown that, you know, we have the uh, the ability to move over 50% of the people and stabilize them. <clears throat> and to um, put in place the right policies. We just need help, and we're not getting that help. And when I left D.C., uh, talking to my colleagues at the, uh, the holiday event, the representatives from Massachusetts, the mayor of Chicago, uh, speaking with all of them, uh, they're experiencing the same frustration that, you know, cities should not be carrying the burden of a national Crises. And when I left D.C., I did not walk out and say uh, that, you know, the cavalry is coming. Can the Democrats in power here, like the mayor of New York, even see the problem of their own party's creation? Of course not. They're far too busy dealing with their own problems, distractions and overwhelming issues as new problems arise and compound existing ones. In the left's scramble to be diverse, inclusive and equitable amongst the masses, the true privilege, those in power and those who fund them, sit above the rest of us and pull the strings. The masses suffer a true race to the bottom. 
Firstly, losing their spending power caused by inflation as a result of panicked COVID policy. Next, by rising interest rates, a common but blunt instrument used to curb inflation by further removing spending power of the next dollar one earns or is given itself inflationary, losing the value and effort of the accomplishments they made in their lifetimes to get ahead. And tomorrow afternoon, commencing at the same time as I'll be hosting my new show, Weekends with Jason Olborn, it promises to be jam-packed with four guests locked and loaded as we pull apart the year's news, the narratives and work out if there indeed is a pathway out of here to success for all of us who have been in this battle for a very, very long time, who all we want is to have the establishment answer for the crimes that they perpetuate over the people. Well, that's the end of the show for today. Thanks for being a part of Compass. And coming up next is Chris Smith. You're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. Compass.